Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week I'm in Germany back at the Kraken at the gaming retreat and it's special guest time once again. So this time I'm joined by Ken Ralston. Hi Ken, how are you doing? Hi, I'm perfect in every way. Well that's, that's awesome to hear. <laughs> I had heard the rumour and now I see in the flesh I see it's true. And it's not nearly perfect in every way like that Mary Poppins person. No, I'm absolutely perfect in every way. Excellent. So you've got quite a, a long and storied gaming history. Um, how did you first start out in, in gaming Is that from a, when you were a wee boy? I'll compress it and try to have nodes of anecdote. I came across Gettysburg, the Avalon Hill, before they had hexagons. They were little squares on it right. in my uncle's uh, house in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I kind of figured I'd move the little chicklets around on the board. And I said, this is the best thing in the world. And then spent the rest of my life trying to re, uh, recapture that experience. Uh, that's probably why I like freeform gaming. I think I like the toys and I like the sense of place that I can go to and myself. And then uh, later I bought a copy of um, Tactics 2, I think, another right. Avalon Hill yeah. game. Played it with myself to the extent that I was patient enough to read the rules. And again, in context, uh, Paranoia, uh, Acute Paranoia, the, one of the books I worked on, has a subtitle, New Rules to Ignore. I believe <laughs> it had this root in being a young man with nobody to play with and having some things that were very exciting, yeah. and yet I didn't feel like I needed the structure of rules or even opponents in order to enter the experience. That was it until uh, I became a high school teacher and somewhere along the line, I heard, no, oh, I was in New York City at the science fiction bookstore on 18th Street uh, and 8th Avenue, which is no longer there, and I picked up a copy of something called Tunnels and Trolls. Oh, I remember it well. And uh, it was a, a knockoff of D&D, &D, but it was a trashy, cheerful uh uh, mimeograph copy uh, oh, and right. I was lucky enough never to do Dungeons and Dragons in the uh, treasured Gygaxian way of having a games master and uh, and players with a caller right. the caller would be the uh, communication hub so the way I worked it uh, we there were about eight of us playing tunnels and trolls Everybody was a single games master, and everybody played as a single player right. with a uh, pack of like six characters. And that's what it was uh, about. So in other words, I learned how to play Dungeons & Dragons in a completely inappropriate way <laughs> relative to the way publishers the the sorted it out. So skip past that. I Somewhere along the line, did some writing for uh, uh, Dragon Magazine. That was my first uh, public publication of game stuff. And then I did some things for Greg Stafford. I wrote for uh, Borderlands, little pieces for Borderlands. Yeah, sure. And then I did uh, some other things, got involved with KSM, and was inspired mostly by Greg and inspired by St. Andre and uh, uh, Stormbringer and... Uh, there was a period then where I was working very hard on, I would think of as third generation boutique games like RuneQuest. Right. And at the same time, I was working uh, for uh, 
Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I interviewed for a position at, uh, uh, in Geneva, but it just didn't seem to fit into my lifestyle at that time, so I became a free, freelancer. Okay, so what, would you say there's someone working for someone like on D&D as opposed to something like the boutique games that you mentioned? Would you say that's a, an entirely different experience or a different expectation? Or I think the great thing about it was I wasn't working in-house for anyone. Therefore, as a sellsword, I had all the, ex- the same kind of experiences I really hope that people have at game conventions when they want to learn how to be a games master. They'll see 10 different games masters and they'll think each one of those is the paradigm. Right, yeah. Uh, so in other words, I had many, many models of how to make a great game, and none of them, in some cases, they didn't even share basic conventions. Right. So that was wonderful. It also meant that I was always stealing from one uh, style, stealing almost from freeform things like uh, tunnels and trolls, mm. and trying to hammer them into uh, a very elaborate movement system. Things like uh, Steve Jackson had, yeah. you know, hexes, and uh, so again, it was stealing from everything that I passed through briefly, and I felt that was a great uh, preparation for me uh, later when I finally decided I would. Uh, yeah, I work with Games Workshop. I think that's pretty much the end of the road for me for paper games in the sense that it was as much fun as I could possibly have. I had toy soldiers and I had uh, role-playing games. So it was totally satisfying in every way. But at that time, video games began had already been very successful. And I got suckered into the worst video game company in modern history. Well, that's, that's some claim. Magnet <laughs> Interactive. No, they were terrible. They were terrible. They, I think they burned something like 25 or $26 million and only produced one game back wow. in 1994. When that was... A dollar's worth a lot more of those. That days. was a lot of yeah. money. And then uh, worked with some really great people. I worked briefly at Legend with Bob Bates. And I learned a lot from Bob Bates, who's a my polar opposite when it comes to narrative. I'm actually a narrative designer. I'm a terrible system designer right. in the sense that I like to ignore rules and I like freeform gaming. But yeah. Bob's... Uh, a master narrative gamer, and he feels that a story should be told to the player. Right. And my right. feeling was that the player should, the whole story should be about the player, yeah. and most of the development should be in the setting and themes. So that's right. kind of a contrasting. In other words, I learned at the feet of masters for narrative game design so that I could steal from their domain where plot and character are the most important thing. But setting and theme was all, already my main uh, thing. And then I, I, uh, I got poached uh, by Bethsoft from uh, Legend with the uh, willing acquiescence of both of the heads of those studios, <laughs> Bob Bates and Chris Weaver, were old friends. They'd been in the industry. It's one of those industries where if you've been around for six or seven or eight or ten years at that time, this is back in uh, the 90s, it's a big deal. Uh, And they just got together and said, well, okay, Ken will be a lot happier. Ken really belongs. (laughs) Everybody would be a lot happier. (laughs) Well, I I think Bob saw some of the puzzles 
that I tried to do, and he despaired of me because yeah. I really didn't get graphic adventure game design. Yeah, sure. He was, again, a very generous and kind to me and let me move on. And then uh, once, you're, uh, once I was at Bestsoft, uh, everything was easy in the sense that my life was a nightmare uh, during uh, Morrowind, making Morrowind, and uh, it was one of the hardest things we've ever done. I've ever done. Uh, it was an impossible task to take an American-style uh, role-playing game and put it onto a console, and I still can't believe it passed cert. Uh, we didn't have anything like QA. We had right. maybe one producer. Nonetheless, first time through cert. Uh, and that's a game that never should pass cert. And <laughs> yet, yeah, hugely popular. It, hugely popular. It was not without its flaws, but I think that is one of the great virtues of Bestsoft that it knows. It's sort of like jazz. Every mm-hmm. note may not be right, but there's so many notes that there's <laughs> yeah. something for everyone. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, it also, as an open world concept in an open world uh, video game, seems like a really, really bad idea mm. in every way. And that's why it was so much fun to try to do, because you put a, a yellow brick road in the game, you give them like a, a save the princess type, or get the rod of seven parts things, and then the player understands that he expects he's expected to go at right angles to the mm. plot every chance he gets. Yes. And that was wonderful. That was yeah. a, another one of the happy accidents of my life that I got to work on something that was so sprawling and incoherent that everybody could have all the fun they wanted to have. And then people find that engaging and wanted to go and poke things and see what else there was out there rather than having to follow their... I suppose a lot of other games up until that point have been quite, as you say, trail of breadcrumbs, like you, you have to go this way. So the chance to not do that and break away and break the rules a little bit Actually, really to people, yeah. the first one of almost every one of the RPG games was too big for its own good and had, therefore, elements of open-worldness. Pool of Radiance, for example, of uh, the uh, Gold Box games, was sprawling and uncompletable because there was just so much content. So part of, a, part of an idea of an open-world game is more content than you can eat. Mm. Uh, and... That almost always after that they find that that's a very popular but impossible to produce. Yeah. And then they make a more compact product that can be followed regularly. Well, Bestsoft didn't do that. They continued to always find new ways to expand uh, the quality of their game, but not to constrain its content scale and ambition. So I was very happy to work with them for about 10 years and work on uh, Morrowind and Oblivion. But I was happy to retire at the end of Oblivion. And then I came out of retirement to help uh, uh, Brian Reynolds and his company Big Huge Games uh, make a role-playing game, uh, with uh, first with THQ and then with EA Partners. And that was a lot of fun because I got... Uh, it's... Uh, it's a wonderful game, and I'm oddly I'm blanking on the, its title is Kingdoms of Amor, but what was uh, the other name? No, we'll get you'll fill I'll that fill in, in later. <laughs> <laughs> I see our eyes that sounds casting <laughs> around the room. <laughs> Reckoning, Reckoning, well, Kingdoms of Amor, yeah. and that's a remarkable game that has uh, fighting game uh, animations 
for an almost open world exploration. Still a pant load of fun. Mm. And then I retired after that. And then I took my last turn in gaming, professional gaming, working for Warner Brothers at Turbine, uh, mostly on uh, incubation and innovation, just for two years. And it was one of the best opportunities I had to think big thoughts and not very much came of them, oh, uh, but right. I became very wise, and I uh, I can talk at great length under other circumstances to people who are really interested in how to make a good pitch or how to design a good game. Right. But I can't necessarily tell you how to make any money. <laughs> That's always the dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah. So that was all in almost all in one breath. The yeah. Well, well done. That was. <laughs> and nobody got hurt. Unraveled 40 years <laughs> in the snap of the fingers. Excellent. So to sort of talk about your, your pen and paper role, I guess. A little Great. Bit more. So uh, I suppose the, the most famous one that people, when I mention your name, come up with is Paranoia and that, that sort of game. Uh, and that, does, would you say that like suits your personality? It seems to be... It suited my personality particularly at that time because I'd been reading Kurt Vonnegut and I was able to take the tone of Kurt Vonnegut, which was a very deconstructionist notion of uh, narrative, and to say, well, we can do a deconstructionist parody of uh, role-playing games. Uh, at, this, at the same time, it's, it's really, it's an open-world game. It's a, it's a diceless game, and I don't think I had any idea how wonderful that was, and it's only in retrospect, looking back, that that's what I was really trying to do. What I did is I found a manuscript that Greg Kostikian had worked on from Dan Gelber and had a little uh, work on it from Eric Goldberg, but it was in SPI case format, wow. and it just had... It, it looked like a SPI game right. in print. And I all I did was make it, find a way to present it in a way that it made its, its tone very clear to everybody in the company. Right. And that was, I would never have known how to do it. It was just improvised on the spot, yet fabulously successful, partly because I think there were so many people who were talented and reckless and irresponsible at the company. Uh, yeah, that I don't know how that product got made. Either. <laughs> that seems to be a feature of a lot of stuff that you. Got yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I yes, improvisation is my gift. Uh, hard work is my gift. Responsibility, not so much. <laughs> so, how would you characterize other people within the industry? Then, do you, are you kind of a maverick? Do you think, or is there a lot of more people more like you, or is there a complete mix across the spectrum? I don't think of myself, I'm perverse. That doesn't make me a maverick. I'm actually very, I'm, I have a strong, I want to collaborate with everybody. I also, since I came from a teaching background, my main goal is to manipulate other people into doing all of my work and taking credit for it. Right. So I think every place that I was of any value at all, it was as a cheerleader or an evil prophet who said, <laughs> this is going to be a lot of fun. Let's go in the desert. You don't need any water or food. It's going to be great. <laughs> and having been lucky enough to either be with uh, someone who had gathered the right people right. or to have accidentally attracted the right people to a place that could do these things. Again, I have to say a lot of it is just sheer dumb luck. And I would also say charm. 
in the sense that it may be the only skill I have that is exceptional <laughs> because that's the way I can get other people to do all my work on craft, yeah. and at the same time not be loathed and hated because <laughs> come I, back and thank you for the opportunity I've just well, <laughs> again that's what I always wanted to do as a teacher I wanted to manipulate them into being good at what they were and at the same time to tell them every time I was manipulating them that here I'm manipulating you look at me see me grinning you don't trust me anymore you shouldn't but I'm telling you everything's okay so that they both have a sense of freedom and a sense of anxiety that they're being betrayed so that, that perfect balance between uh, confidence and inspiration and is saying this can't go well (laughs) that's an ideal situation i think for uh for people who are being cheerleaded into something i hope in each case you'll have the right mix of people who are responsible great system designers great narrative designers some mavericks some studiously humorless but uh, sincere and hardworking people. Mm. Uh, again, all these games were all <clears throat> like in the movies. They're all group uh, things, and all I am is essentially like the rabbit that is uh, running out in front of a dog race. You know, that's kind of like a catalyst. Just yeah, to yeah, 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 catalyst or yeah. something to chase. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so how do you think um, it works with some of the independent games? Because one of the things that's happened quite recently is there's been a lot of small press stuff. So with print-on-demand and all that kind of thing, certainly in the UK, uh, in the last 10 years, we've quite a lot of people are basically making stuff in the garage or in the bedroom or whatever else, and they're just like one-man band operations. But seem to be getting more from... They'll do quite a lot of beta tests, for example, so they'll, they'll kickstart something and then throw something out to the world and say, you know, rip this apart. Then it comes back. And then, but so you've kind of got one person in charge of it, but then you've got this huge array of people that are going to try and attack it or make it better or, or whatever else. Developing a game in front of your audience is the greatest revolution in game uh, development. It's harder, I th- much harder to do for a large corporation and a money grubbing cor- corporation because it's less efficient in generating money. But with the creation of Kickstarter, both for paper and pencil, and also very much so for independent uh, video games. It's a way to improve the quality of a game in such a way that the users are the authors, and there's a clearer understanding that... uh, I'm going to put a parenthesis here. Uh, When I think of... Uh, books or movies or things like that there's the text which is the object that you're uh, reading and then there's the readers or the users and I think the really critical thing to think of as literature is both of those things not just the text and the degree to which Kickstarter style development in front of your group having constant feedback and commentary on it and fast iteration that is integrating the user's response back into the product before it gets published. Yeah. And that is, it's, I think it's a fantastic model. I don't think it could work so well in film or in literature. And it's kind of a miracle that it works in paper gaming and even in video gaming. So yeah. uh, I get excited about that. And I also, when I do see nowadays... Open University 
publication, uh, re revision, there's a revision of a book called Stepping Stones about geology and uh, evolution. And the guy essentially had a blog for years. And what he's done is he takes that blog content, which gets commentaries on it, and therefore gets, uh, instead of just peer-reviewed through academics, it's people reading it and saying, I don't understand you. Can you fix this? Yeah, yeah. And he takes all that material that he's worked first as a blog, puts it back into his uh, stepping stones, publishes a new free internet, a constantly evolving right, version a living of book. document. And that's where I think it's possible for some books to begin to follow that model too. Right. And that right. excites the crap out of me. It's, mm. And it's all a function of the internet and the ability to, uh, to have communities that can build pipelines to develop things like this. But uh, I'm proud to say that gaming is where that sort of thing has been prototyped. And yeah, tested. absolutely. Yeah, that's no, great. I mean, Blaze in the Dark is one of the games that we've been looking at recently. And brilliant game but like the version i got just before it was properly released was like version 8.2 or something like that because it just gone through so many iterations of just been out and being played so Which two years is this, this is called blades in the dark by a guy called john harper i have not i don't know this so I, you I, should check it out it's um the elevator pitches it's oceans 11 with pole arms so it's kind of um you're in a city called Duskvolt, and it's got this uh, electric barrier around it, so you can't get out of the city that's just a conceit there's all these demons and things so you have to stay in the city and you've got a criminal gang and you start at the bottom and you go robbing other people and you annoy other gangs and the watcher after you and the heat rises so that there's more attention paid on you by the police and you cause trouble and problems but can't get out of the city so it all comes back to haunt you and that kind of thing. So it's you're basically a, a thieves gang in this city and you can't get out of it and the more trouble you cause the more it comes back on you and that kind of stuff. So really interesting sort of setup. Um, and you kind of got reputations with the gangs that go up and down, and you know you, you start gang wars and pick sides or don't, or both hate you. Or for the record, I'm grinning like a madman. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's really good. So and uh, it's great because it, it works from a, a point of view. Just getting stuck into the action as well. So you can kind of do a gather information step. You know, where you, you get information, you describe what you do. You either go, you go around all the bars and get stuff, or you, you scope the place out, that kind of stuff. But once you've done one role for that, you kind of get in. It's like okay, you're in this hideout and you're going through these tunnels like, now what do you do and you're there and it sort of avoids the problem from some old games like play Shadowrun where players have spent three hours planning the adventure and then an hour actually doing the fun bit which seems ridiculous so Blades puts you more like you're already on the mission you're in the, the enemy company now what do you do uh, and then you can kind of use flashback rules or things like this to spend a bit of stress when, well of course I brought my rope and grappling hook because I knew there'd be a tower here and you retroactively describe your preparations as you're playing the game and going through the mission so that's you know so putting the, your characters right there in the action straight away so. the improv improvisatory uh, cunning and the theatrical flourish of explaining how of course you solve this problem is the way that you achieve in other words that's that's the puzzle yes. that you're trying to solve as exactly. a, that sounds really delicious and also uh <clears throat> i'd like to know how the games master is taught how to betray it because it's nice to be able to win but i also like the player uh, it'd be great if the players were engaged in some way to betray one another uh, just to give that kind of level of uh, player in, uh, engagement in the a total narrative. Because something like that is all about the things you get right, but it's also about the things that just don't 
quite go right and you're right on the edge with it. Yeah, cool. And then part of that is the dice mechanic. So it's, it's kind of, it bears a bit of inheritance from, um, the Apocalypse World games. I don't know even know them, but it's basically you roll some dice and on a result of up to 50%, you've just failed and you've messed it up. So now what do you do? Um, and there's like a, at the top end, there's like one in six chance that you succeed and everything's perfect. But then there's that four or five where you succeed, but or yes, and. And it's that kind of thing. We're like, okay, yeah, you do sneak past the guard, but now you found yourself in the guard room and they're all sat around playing poker. So now what do you do? And it's that, so the mechanics give that extra bit of, you can have what you wanted, but here's the new problem that comes along with that, or here's the extra consequence. So the rules give you that extra bit of, yeah, you, okay, you, you've picked a lot. Now, you know, you set off the magical trap because you didn't check for that. So now what do you do? And the screaming <laughs> ghosts everywhere. So how do you solve that particular problem? So just by playing the game and rolling the dice, like, you know, 50% of the time, there's that extra bit of, well, yeah, you did think to bring this thing, but now this thing's happened, which you didn't think about. So now what do you do? And it's that constant pushing forward all the time, which I think it makes a really interesting game, I think. Well, I'm already waiting to get to play this weekend. Right, okay. I'll have to see how I've got the PDF in. I'll have to put them together. Um, so from your, the other stuff that you've written then, are there any kind of... Um, I've mentioned some mechanics there or styles of player. Is there anything from that you've produced that you think is um, particularly... Uh, interesting mechanic or I know you said you try and avoid them but what do you try and bake into games that you think when you were writing something you thought this isn't here yet or I've not seen this in other games this is something I want to do is there anything like that where you think I put this into my game because I want this to happen and I haven't seen it yet I have to say no I almost have I have almost no uh, principles uh, <laughs> and I've tr I tried to write a book one time and I was able to make a list of all the things I've learned how to do but none of them are really principles. Uh, I think I have strategies, and what? it's looking for tone and looking for setting. Uh, but I, I really, I don't, I don't think I'm a very methodical game designer. I, so I you're just more as an art than a science kind of I, thing. Mostly, it's just like a jazz and improvisation. I'm deeply steeped. In the material, and therefore, magpie-like, uh, I can snatch little bits out of anything. Uh, but I mean, you, you certainly make me embarrassed. I certainly should be able to have that. most of. The, somebody asked me my uh, most important dictum uh, a couple weekends, and no, just this last weekend, and I had to say, I I thought about it, and Greg Stafford said to me one time, "Don't do too much." <laughs> and I think that's, I think given what I, I've always done all my life, don't do too much. And then taking, I so respect what he says, and I knew he was so right. So that's where I'm in that tension between my internal self-assurance that uh, I believe in brute force. If brute force isn't working, you're not using enough brute force. <laughs> yeah. But there's something about having uh, the willingness to place yourself under some constraints and also always be thinking maybe it's time to get some features out uh, so maybe it's the ability to play the role as an editor right. that I have I think I'm actually a much better editor I'm, I'm a good cheerleader and then once I've got everybody screaming and running around I can be an effective editor to help people crap detect things I can smell uh, Mostly, it's just I'm sensitive to good notes and bad notes. Right. I can give people good feedback on that. So how how I mean how do you measure? Is it just an innate ability when you mention like you want to get the tone right? How do you 
know when you hear something? Is it just that gut feel that like this feels right and this doesn't feel right? Or have you? I think it is that absolutely. I never. Uh, there's a the 200 rules project for video games, or I don't actually know what the name of it was. Uh, video game designers all got together and tried to put together a very very long list of good rules. And I never, though they're exciting and I enjoy them a lot, I never use them. <laughs> and I think the most interesting thing about them is that each rule has its uh, opposite and it's a special case where it doesn't work. So uh, I do believe that the things that I do, I can't teach. Let me put it that way. Because I'm too lazy. But when I was working at Warner Brothers, I was very much trying to teach, for example, I've tried to teach how to write pitches for video games. So I have a very elaborate drill for doing that. And I have rules in that case. Right. But they're more like steps and procedures uh, for production. They're not uh, anything about what makes a good game or not. And do you think there's um, enough people like that in the industry? I mean, because there seems to be a lot of focus on this guy's really good at writing rules or this guy's, you know, great. another aspect like that. Are there enough sort of those soft skills almost where there's not, you can't write it down and follow an instruction guy? I, I think there are very few very gifted people who I often know and see at work, particularly in Glorantha, Robin Laws and all of his work and Mike, oh my God, Michael O'Brien, and his MG, oh, what's it, Maximum Game Fund. Those are my two paradigms of ways to present an open world experience so that uh, that the users can read it and get the tone of what they're supposed to be uh, uh, achieving. Right. And uh, with just enough rules, and in Michael's case, with no rules at all, oh, yeah. uh, there is a, I feel the best gaming experiences that I've ever encountered come out of those. Now, whether there's not enough of those people? Or perhaps it's the... I think a common complaint with games sometimes, at least some of the new ones, yeah. even ones from big companies, is it comes out and then people say, okay, I read it, it seems great. Now what do my players do? There's, the, there's not like baked into the text of the game, either the background or the rules or whatever it is, that, that tells you like, okay, no, no, like with Blades in the Dark, I'm quite clear that you're part of a criminal gang and you're at the bottom of the ladder and you're trying to fight your way up it however you can. There you go, that's, that's what my players are going to do. There's some other games that come out, I won't mention them, but you look at them, you read 500 pages, say, and you're like, I still don't know what my players would do now. Like, you know, I've got this great world, it's full of things, I know 2,000 years of history about who the Queen used to be and all this kind of stuff, but what do I actually do? You know, what, what do I want to do as a player? I don't know. As a reader, player, critic, editor of games, I'm no longer professionally invested in anything so I've kind of lost my judgmental touch right I I can look at a game that I don't like at all because of what it does and at the same time I say well that's fine perhaps it'll find its audience mm -hmm. in other words I'm not useful as a critic to help you know what you need to have more of in the world yeah okay and I I think I'm very uh, grateful for the variety that exists. And I also believe, uh, just for example, with Steam, there's so many more games published now. And I don't care whether they're any good or not. I think they'll find their audience or they won't. 
it bothers me more to have a brilliant game concept that's really not polished enough to publish disappear without a, uh, a, a trace. Paranoia could easily have been that. Mm. Uh, Dan Gelber, when he did it, Dan Gelber is not literate. He writes in pencil on legal pads. Uh, his spelling is not very good, but he created a brilliant, brilliant game. If he hadn't been a friend of uh, Greg Kostikian and Eric Goldberg, that game might not have existed. Yeah. So, again, I like the chaos and squalor <laughs> of the marketplace right now. Yeah. And I also, oh, boy, do I love Kickstarter. I think that has just changed the world in every way. It's uh, meant that the big money makers uh, no longer are the gatekeepers. Mm. Milton Bradley and those people, it's not important. Yeah, it's call a distributor out, which was, you know, yeah. that's just dead money, wasn't it? You, you're you paying can, someone to hand something to someone else. That's, that's so, yeah, I, I think I live in a golden age of games. Cool. So um, who else have you worked with in the RPG industry that you might want to give a shout out? You've mentioned to a couple other people. Are there any great people or just people who've given you a bit of something or you saw something they did and thought, that was cool? I think Sandy Peterson has ruined me for ever <laughs> having any higher aspirations. <laughs> uh, you know, just with Troll Pack alone... I think I drift in despair, and it releases me. I no longer have the responsibility to, to, to work very hard to be any better. Yeah. I steal from him uh, in references whenever I can. Oddly enough, there are certain groups, can't tell you who it is, uh, they published a, an Islandia was what they were called. I think uh, William Wheeler was uh, one of the names of the guys. And he put out a series of really wonderful um, generic materials for Dungeons and Dragons. And yet they had the most remarkable innovate, innovative way of presenting a room where it was broken down into what you see when you come into the room, uh, a closer look, a careful examination. And it had all of these uh, very evolved presentation tricks in it and used them really very, very cleverly and had great maps and uh, sometimes they would have boxed games with all these uh, chunks of uh, jerkbait, we'll call it. You know, right, like yeah. little pieces of uh, props and things like that. Uh, and I think mostly, I don't think of game designers so much as studios. Like, Chaosium is very much made up of its process and ethos. And it's the those products that I think of as the bellwethers, and I really I don't really know who's responsible for things. I love and adore Greg. I never know exactly how much of anything is Greg's. Uh, I totally love RuneQuest as an idea. It's like one of the great things. I love Steve Jackson. Mm. Uh, I haven't stolen from him in many years, but. It has been 20 years since I've published a major paper and pencil game, so I have to admit, I'm not fresh in that. There are people like Curtis Smith who is, uh, and uh, Steve Winter at uh, TSR who are magnificent editors. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from uh, having my stuff edited by them and just by talking with them. Greg Kostikin and Eric Goldberg, I just 
admire them and I uh, love wasting time with them <laughs> and I love you know uh, the ambitions of their games and so those are just some people just like, some of the many that you work with yeah yeah so um, when you've got things like uh, I guess computer games or video games stuff seem quite easy to translate from another medium so if you've got a film and you kind of want to make a game out of it that seems quite easy to do because you can get quite a lot of the visuals and you can follow a basic storyline um, things like uh, role playing games or pen and paper would seem like more difficult to try and produce the sort of things that might happen in a film or TV series and then produce them as a, as a game so have you got any thoughts on that? Because it seems to me that there's quite, certainly at the minute, there's a lot of licenses like Star Wars has got a new edition and, and things like that. How would you go about, or is it any different or, from your view of creating a pen and paper game based on a TV series or something like that to try and capture that ethos that you've mentioned or the feel of it without just being a scripted, the same thing happened in the game that happened in the, in the show? I think because of the money to be made in video games the license attached to the video games has made high-level productions possible. Mm. The only... I'm proud to have worked on the Elder Scrolls games, which are not derivative of a license. But nowadays, if you want to publish a video game, you probably need to have a license. I think I'm hard-pressed to think of paper and pencil games who have benefited from their licenses. Right. Uh, I think many of them have done a decent service to their licenses and at the same time have been far from instrumental in the success of that license. Right. So also looking at it from a licensor's uh, point of view, trying to make money out of a, a, a product, they should probably not waste their time on paper games in general. And I I think it's a bad match. So I feel bad about that because I want people to have paper and pencil games of the things they like. But because of who I am, I'd much rather they make their own uh, shoddy and personable knockoffs yeah, quite. of it. Yeah. And mashups. I. Uh, I'm trying to think of some uh, counter examples, and I. I mean, a, a good example of what I think suits the source material. I don't know if the One Ring, but that's Cubicle Seven game. But that really, the system, or just like sort of three mini systems, it really. But that emulates the source material novels and, and films. Um, so one of the mechanics in there is about journeys, which is something generally like you kind of. Well, I want to get from here to there, and dread. Okay, you're there, or you, you have a wandering monster. But within that game, it gives you like stuff that happens on the way and hazards that might come up because that's a part of the novels, and you know they travel up and down the lengths of Middle Earth. So it does well at emulating that. Like, and when I run it for my guys, by the time they got through Mertwood, the players were like, "We're never going through Mertwood ever again." Do you know what I mean? And that was that. So that really brought to life the sort of things that you expect from the novels. Whereas in many games like D&D, you get a couple of wandering monsters, fine, we'll, we'll back from Mertwood on the way back. But it did a great job of saying to the players, "Well, we're going round. Like, I don't care how far round we have to go, how many more miles it is. We're not going through Mertwood again." So that's a good example, I think, of something that emulates the sort of stories that they were told originally. You know what I mean? So that, that's a good one, but. I, when I did the um, Stormbringer, the two Stormbringer books, Stormbringer and the Black Sword, uh, for Chaosium, I think I was deconstructing Moorcock in that the hero was not Elric, 
the players were their adventure was to try to kill El Elric, yeah. which is a hopeless task. Yeah. <clears throat> so that I think for me, the thing I would always be wanting to do in that case is to let the players deconstruct or take a, a, a to be subversive mm. with it. Uh, well, I, think that's... I don't think it's bad to not want to be subversive. I, yeah. I feel dirty and mean <laughs> to, to, to kids. So maybe I think I am too perverse, sophisticated, and... Um... I think it's part of what you mentioned about putting the players first, doesn't it? Because sort of one of the aspects I'm not as keen on, but obviously some people are in, in the one ring, is that you get bits where it's like, okay, and if you go to this village at this time, then you might get a glimpse of Radagaster Brown. And some people are really excited about that. And I'm like, I don't care about Radagaster Brown. Like, he's just a, you know, it's just some words on a page. Like, I want to know what my players are doing and what their characters have done in the world to impact it. And this, it's also a counter-argument for playing that game that some people have had, and they're saying, well, I know what happens in Lord of the Rings, so I don't want to play it because I know what the end of the story is. And it's like, yeah, but... It's the journey, it's the story about your characters. It's not what's happening at a meta level and whether Sauron gets his, you know, ring back or not. We're actually talking about what do you guys do in this situation and what's the effect on their lives, you know. That's, that's what we're interested in, surely. Oh, that's my view. I, I, uh, I'm enjoying this conversation more than you may be <laughs> successfully getting useful stuff out of me because it's something I haven't thought about and now that I'm forced to think about it, I feel very awkward and cruel to people who want to uh, play a, 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 the Star Wars games, for example, I've worked on some of those, and I loved the way they caught the feel of a Star Wars experience, using right. the dice the way they worked, and it was, the system was broken, you know, it, it wasn't a really, uh, <clears throat> it broke down under stress right. as a campaign. But I, I admired that experience, the Ghostbusters game. Uh, I enjoyed putting that together. But I think at the end of the day, I have a strong suspicion that a open world approach, uh, open, uh, sorry, a free form approach yes. would be a better, better fit for the soul. Better fit form yeah. for the people I know. And I yeah. would probably, given a choice, seeing young innocent children rather than giving them something that had rules to it i would trick them <clears throat> into thinking the only kind of a game to play was a freeform game yeah quite and uh, an interesting one that i played uh i, I, I get, I'll, I'll call him a friend i don't know if he considers it the same way but certainly an acquaintance and uh, called uh, Raphael chandler lives in the states um, he's done quite a few things. Uh, his most recent one that was great was uh, ViewScreen, which was designed purely to be done over Hangouts or Skype or whatever. Uh, and that has very few rules, uh, and it's really just kind of when somebody asks you for something, you've got a certain number of responses, and you have to give one of those four out. And at the end of the adventure, you've given all of them out. And depending on how things play out, either your character survives or dies. And it's all really pressure cooker things. So you're on a you're on a spaceship and you're all isolated. So you're all speaking your little comm units. Uh, to each other and you're trying to like get off the ship and not everybody's going to get off the ship because the mechanics work in such a way that there aren't enough spaces in the pod you know but depending on what responses you give to who and, and I think that's a really like without using rules in the classical way like what's my initiative or how many hit points to have it's using some some rules in a freeform way that still drive the story forward and give you a resolution at the end but without being in your face or you're having to look up tables you know it's just there baked into the background 
you're a bad <clears throat> you're a bad person for humbling me. I absolutely understand your enthusiasm for that since I haven't played and or read paper and pencil games for so long. I love Raphael Chandler's work, particularly what he did. Uh, he wrote a very good book on uh, uh, writing narrative uh, mm. video games. Uh, but I, having missed that uh, particular thing, I'm excited by what he tried to do, just in the way you explain it to me. Cool. So, Raphael and so there's a lot like Dennis Ditwell who writes a bit about video games industry and all the rest of it. Would you say still, there's still, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily antipathy, but there seems to be a lot of, from good people I know who produce good work within the industry, they seem frustrated with how the industry is set up and people being able to get into it and uh, companies maintaining themselves and not falling apart. There seems to be a lot of that happening and a lot of hiring and firing and stuff like that. Does it seem... From an outsider's point of view, anyway, it seems like I've got a lot of good people and a lot of good work they produce, like yourself and Raphael and Dennis and all these others. Um, but then there seems to be uh, not necessarily the rewards of that. It seems like a tough industry to be in. Like people are there because they want to do it, but but it's not like an enjoyable experience necessarily. Is that? I think I have been lucky to make a middle, fabulously middle class uh, living out of what I'm doing. But I think in the paper and pencil publishing era uh, uh, material, I am less impressed with what the publishers are doing, like D&D, all the very, uh, most recent versions, either repelled me or not impressed me. Right. And I think those are the only places, on the other hand, where you could go to make a good living. And I also, you know, uh, God, now I'm in trouble again uh who wrote the board game uh sorry i'll call it a board game but it's a uh kind of a freeform role-playing game which is sort of like uh the cohen brothers movies uh Uh, fiasco fiasco okay and i've forgotten jason morningstar okay he deserves to be celebrated Mm. and i don't care if he's fabulously rich or not he should be very happy because he's done brilliant work i Think there, I I think I have a strong impulse to suspect that if you're outside the industry, you are doing more uh, poetic work. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to use the poetic. I, uh, and I've, again, I've I've certainly been corrupted, uh, and I'm I'm happy that whatever I'm only doing a very bit, very small bit of paper and pencil work. I'm helping with uh, uh, reading some paranoia stuff uh, for the new paranoia game, and uh, working with uh, Glorantha. And the work I'm doing in it is all almost at right angles to everything that they're trying to do. Right. And it's, again, it's subversive, perverse, deconstructionist, but it's also, in some way, I think I'm just interested in uh, different effects than a lot of people are already, uh, the fans are doing. And it may be because I'm old and sophisticated and jaded, and I've sucked all the goodness out of things. I, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what the phrase, the melon. Uh, the melancholy romance of lost loves. That was uh, I was going to try that as a, um, a theme for a chat uh, here about 
like your first D and D game, you can never have that same kind of experience. No, that, right. And what I'm looking for whenever I'm writing something is I want to make something that feels that way again to the people who play it. So, if that ever requires new mechanics, that's wonderful. Mm. It would not be me that would do those new mechanics. You have and people for that, obviously. The, the brilliance of Fiasco is to even have, not even the mechanics, but a procedure of play, a rhythm of play, a model of play mm. that people can use as a, uh, almost like the rules of improvisation to say, now what am I supposed to be doing? How should it look? That's, uh, I think I'm more interested in helping as a games master, speaking through the stuff that I'm working right. uh, on, saying, wouldn't this be interesting to play, and isn't this different from what you normally are trying to play? And I'm also, just to be honest, trying to steal from Michael O'Brien <laughs> and Maximum Game Fun, and wanting to find ways to use those that around the table system to have the kinds of experience you can't have anyplace else. I, I did a, a session here two years ago, uh, Scions of Ralzakark. And I just love the idea of having players all be brew who are the sons of Rousekark and who are in a West Point uh, situation. Rousekark's decided he wants to have officers in the Lunar Army, so he brings up a lot of his own spawn brew, and I thought it would be great to have players play that. It turns out that that's not what a lot of other published <laughs> materials about. Really? It, also, it turns out it probably wouldn't be any fun with the rules. <laughs> but I, because that's what I want to do, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to be using, I don't want to read the rules to start with, and I don't want to run the gameplay, but I'm certainly not a guy to look to for an inspiration in a good mechanic. Right, but I think that's that's what a lot of the small press stuff I mentioned. That's what a lot of that's about, and um, a lot of the mechanics are quite simple. And from first glance, if you come straight from D and D or something, you look at the rules and go, "Well, there's not a lot here." And but actually, um, a lot of the rules in inverted commas are baked into the the story of the game as you read it. And he's telling you how to play that game. So if you want to play a Coen Brothers movie, then you pick up Fiasco, and like I've probably been referred to as unkind for calling it Stone Soup. But when you look at it in terms of rules, there's not a massive amount there. What it is is a guide to how you play a Coen Brothers movie. It's not actually a traditional role-playing game in that sense. It's not even a board game in that sense, in the sense that if you don't get what he's trying to do, you can't just sit down and play it, right. and if you're not the right kind of people. But I will share with you, it does occur to me, I do have a, a new mechanic that I've been using called uh, either the Winds of it's usually the winds of fate, and it's in a freeform game, rolling 2d6 whenever the player, I believe, is clearly trying to push his luck. In other words, the player's thinking that he might not ought to be able to get away with the thing that he's trying to do. And what I do with that roll is I roll that and I say, that's probably how you should feel in your heart that just went right and it's not going to affect anything right now but you and i the game master and the player are going to remember that dice roll just in connection with it and 
you should remember how you feel about that now. Right. And everybody sitting around the table should remember how that worked. And they probably should feel that it, that if, if something can fall out of that, it should be. So <laughs> the, should the whole basic there. idea is that whenever, as a player, you are either trying to weasel something, which is an honorable thing, or in an earnest way, trying to push uh, your playing through your character and trying to push him as far as he can go and take some risks. Mm. Then I want you to feel that you have the presence, that you have that dramatic presence in the moment, and that there is a sustained glow and maybe a little smoke along the (laughs) trail so that you can look back and say that that's probably going to get woven into the narrative somehow by the whole team. Yeah, that's great. I mean, reincorporation is something I always advocate as well. So anytime anybody brings anything in, you kind of make a little note of that and that's going to come back later. And, you know, it could be the musician who's playing in the streets as he walked through a medieval town. And like the next time you come past, you know, he's he's got a black eye and stuff like that because somebody didn't like the music he was playing. And the next time, you know, there's just an instrument there and he's disappeared or, you know, just little bits and details like that you kind of do games are just bringing about that familiarity and shared experience that all adds to the, the texture of the game doesn't but it? it's also stealing from the basic improvisational uh improvisation improvisational game uh role-playing game thing of the dice don't ro- lie you are just stepping out of theater for a moment and rolling those dice and everybody's remembering like it w- uh, was the first time you rolled dice and didn't know so it's it's a trying to steal from your experiences and make references to your experiences yeah. in in a way that kind of breaks the flow, but is part of the idiom that we all share around. Yeah, the table. yeah, of course. So I've had much experience of free form games, and I'm not I'm not quite sure in that area. But I don't think I do anything but free form games anymore. Right. I've done LARPs for years and uh, worked uh, with Sandy and Lawrence Schick. Uh, with the cruel hoax materials, usually as a assistant games master or just as a, a player, and some of the best work that has ever been done in gaming at all has been done in the LARPs, and also the uh, Gloranthan uh, LARPs, David and Sandy and all the other people who put together all those great. Uh, what's the home of the bold and uh, other great freeforms? Those are for me and the whole free form movement out of Australia, I think that greatly shaped my uh, desires. Mm-hmm. So that that's really all I do anymore. Right. I think I, uh, O'Brien's is basically a free form in that style. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Cool. Well, it's, uh, it's been excellent to talk to you, but I'm, I'm getting signals from our generous host. Stink so. eye is what we call is it. Is that what we call it? <laughs> um, so I'll just, uh, I'll just ask you a, a final question. So what, what are you working on at the minute? What's got you excited? Have you got new ideas? Here's where I don't know if I can tell you. So what I'll do is I'll tell you I know I can tell you, and then we'll have the place where you go, uh, um, this will be the noise that we'll use as the bleeping. Okay, go for it. Uh, what I am doing now is I'm working on a uh, Gloranthan uh, piece to be uh, published at some point with the new uh, RuneQuest uh, role-playing in Glorantha. And it's uh, something I'm going to run for the first time here as a kind of a prototype piece. Right. And uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about that after I've gotten it done. Uh, and it doesn't have a very compelling title, so it won't help. Silver Creek 
instead is what it's called now. Right. But it's it's about some young teenagers that get into a jam. Right. And I love teenagers getting into a jam. One thing I'll say, I'm not a huge fan of RuneQuest having uh, experienced characters now. Like where you're beginning characters at 26 years old. They're already... You know, like cradle, cradle <laughs> adventure <laughs> yeah. characters. Yeah, they're they're uh, rune lords. And when I played uh, RuneQuest as a kid, I never got into combat because I knew I would die. So one of the great things is it encouraged role playing and running from things, which yeah. is the people never do in role playing games. No. So thank God RuneQuest was so deadly and so mean spirited as a tabletop combat system that it made me a great role player. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for your time, Ken. Great to speak to you. Cheers.